0: I'm looking forward to gathering with some of you this evening at 7 as we come to just pray and to be together as, as a body. If you're not able to be here or you might just want one of these, I, do, I did print off uh, a few, a few um, hard copies of the prayer guide. If you have the ability to do it online, please don't take one of those uh, and leave it for those who don't have that ability, but it'll be a great time just being together and praying uh, tonight at 7, and then uh, the rest of the time, including Saturday, uh, we'll have it all online as well. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them. We're going to be in Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33, as we start a new sermon series on uh, what we've called churchology, which is not a real word, so... Uh, it's a made-up word. Uh, if you really want the the word that would be called be called ecclesiology, but we're going to call it churchology, and that's okay. It's a made-up word. If you Google it, actually, I'm not the only one, so uh, it's okay. Um, for those who are visiting, my name is Pastor Nate. I'm one of the pastors here, along with Pastor Matt. Um, if you're visiting, please make sure that we let you know that let us know. That we're here, maybe we can go outside where you can take your mask off and we can have a conversation, and that would be great. But let me ask you this question as we start off into this new sermon series, looking at churchology, the who and the what we are. We're looking at what is church, but let me ask this question is when you think about church, what comes to mind? What is that thing that you think about when you think about church? How about when you think about the church, what comes to mind? Is it a building that you go to? Is it a group of friends that you get to see once a week and you get to hang out together? Is it a time when you sit and listen to some guy talk for like 30 minutes or 40, maybe longer, uh, depending upon how, I'm going to do this, depending upon how we feel the spirit of the Lord is working. How about that? Oh yes, no one's going to lecture me later today. And, and you're not going to a restaurant, so it's not like you're waiting for anything. But if you have your, open your Bibles to Ephesians 5, and, I'll, and, and we'll get there, but first we need to understand something when we're looking at this part of the letter that Paul has written to a specific local church in a city called Ephesus. And as we think about that, uh, we need to understand that in the Bible there's two ways of using the word church. There is a universal sense the universal church, which includes, includes everyone that God has called to himself. But also, within the Bible, we see a local church, which is why Paul writes to a specific church in a specific city, so there's a specific group of people there. But as we look at this section, we need to have some context of what is going on, and the Apostle Paul is finishing off how, or starting off, how Christian family is to work, and is addressing each aspect of what the family is to look like in a Greco-Roman society, but also in our Christian lives itself. And he starts off chapter uh, 5 with this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That is really the context, which means this, that our lives, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, every aspect of your life is to exemplify Christ. And what he has done for you through the saving work that he did on the cross. Marriages are to exemplify church relationships with Jesus. And even as you look through this, you see how children and parent relationships are to exemplify Christ. How relationships between slaves and masters are to exemplify Christ. So this is all This it's all wrapped up into this context of walking in love. So ind- indirectly, we are talking about marriage in this passage. But really, all that Paul talks about comes out of the relationship that Jesus has with this church. Every other relationship that you see here is wrapped in that context of what Christ has done for his church. And that's why we're going to be talking about that. So if you have your Bibles, Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33 says this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and and himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything in their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of this body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Whoever let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see all that she, res- see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father God, we just thank you for how we get to worship you more as we get to see the hearts of Christ for your people. Father, I am weak and I can't do this on my own. So Lord, I pray that you would, by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. Use this sermon, God, to bring glory to your name and joy to your people and salvation to the lost. And amen. So in verses 22 to 24, we see this first point here that Christ is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ, sorry. And what does this look like? What does it look like to be the bride of Christ? You see, right in verse 23, it says this, that Christ is the head of the church. And what does it mean to have Jesus as our head? Back in chapter 4, verse 15, we see the description that says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. See, Jesus shows his rule over his people as he cares and nourishes for his body, the church. His bride. But also there is a fulfillment of God's purposes that are happening here. So when Christ is the head of the church, he is the one who has authority over her. So essentially when Jesus says, do something, you say, yes, Jesus, I'm going to do that. And here head is talking about authority over. Jesus is the authority over the church. How, this, how is this shown, though, within the church? When we recognize that Jesus is the head of the body, what does that look like? And we see later on that now as the church submits, by the church is submitting to Christ, this is how we see him being the head of the church. The, the, the image is painted as a as church submits to Christ, so does a wife submit to her husband. And now comes a minefield. Because nobody likes this passage, right? Especially in our world. Nobody does. Yet yeah, you're like, well, pastor, why did you choose it? Well, because it's a very great picture of what Christ and the church is and what the church is. In Genesis 3.16, we've just seen how Adam and Eve have sinned against God. And sin has begun to permeate every aspect of the human race. And God begins to say, these are the curses that are going to happen to each one of you. He talks about Adam, he talks about Eve, he talks about the serpents. In verse three, in, in chapter 3, of verse 16, it says this, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Well, if you're a mother, you totally understand. In pain you shall bring forth children. But then there's a second part here. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband's, but he shall rule over you. Interesting, isn't it? The curse of sin has penetrated all of humanity. It is like a poison that has destroyed us. Now, what is the outcome of the sin? For the woman, multiplying your pain and shearing. But did you check that last part there? Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Meaning what? That the idea of submission will become perverted to you. Either extreme. Either you submit to a deadbeat husband and all of his in- awfulness. Or the other side, you fight it all the time. But here, Paul ties together submission between husband and wife, just like Christ and the church. He's redeeming it and reminding us of what true submission looks like, not only in the marriage, but also in the church. So a note about this in regards to marriage before we talk about the church, because it's a minefield. Because this isn't a popular thing in our world. In Christ's church, and there's been a lot of trying to explain it away and a lot of perversion of it. Wives are commanded to submit to their husband. The word here says your own. Which means Paul is talking about wives are not, wives are to submit to their husband, not to every husband. Okay? I, I have one wife. I don't, you know, anyways. <coughs> There there also shows that a wife is not expected to submit to everyone's husband, but specifically to her own. But there's also this use of the middle voice of the verb that's going on in verse 25, which is emphasizing a voluntary nature of submission. In marriage, Paul says that a wife is to submit willingly to her husband, but nowhere does it say husbands are to demand it. So husbands, if you come to your wife and you say, the Bible says that you are to submit to me, that's not what the text is saying. In the text, worry about what addresses you. Let your spouse worry about what is written to her or him. Because we even see in Acts 5.29, it says this, it doesn't mean that a wife should submit to her husband in matters that are sinful or harmful or contrary to God's commands. Because we see in Acts 5.29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. For you men, a real man loves his wife as Christ loves the church. And everyone's like, oh, let's just, okay, that's great. Do you understand the implications of what that means and what you've been commanded to do? Because that's, that's what Paul's talking about, and that's what we're going to be breaking down here. A real man loves his wife as Christ loved the church. Christ loved his bride becomes the standard by which a husband should love his bride. And now, is, and how is that shown? We see later on, he gave himself up for her. His love was self-initiated and self-sacrificial. The parallel, however, should not be pressed. A husband should be like Christ with his self-sacrificing love, but he does not die in her place, okay? Jesus is the only Savior. Only Jesus can save. Nor does a husband sanctify or cleanse her. He should, however, be willing to sacrifice everything to protect and to care for his wife. So, potential wives, that's the man you're looking for. Nothing shorter of that. That is the standard. If you're looking for a husband, that is the man that you are called to look for. One who loves you as Christ loves the church. If you're a Christian, that's the standard. It's like I say to my kids, I, say that, I think I've said this before. With my kids, I say the same thing regularly. I don't really care about who you marry. I don't. I don't care what job they have, as long as they have a job. You know, they work, they have a job. They pull up their pants, you know, things like that. There's, there's stuff. Right? make sure that they love Jesus more than you. Because if they love Jesus more than you, they're going to do exactly what Paul is talking about husbands and, 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 and wives are going to do. They're going to love you as Christ has loved them. Anyways, moving on now. Church. There's my sermons on, on, on marriage. What does it look like for the church to submit to Christ? Submit is not a nice word. We struggle with it daily. How dare we submit? I remember writing something uh, for here, and someone kind of circled it and said, maybe you should change the word to something else. And I used the word submit. I was like, no, that's a biblical word. We're going to use it. You have to. We struggle with it. But why do we struggle with it? Genesis 3.16. But how does this work? It's an arranging of my life under the righteous purpose of God. When I submit to God, when the church submits to God, the church can't fulfill its purpose to the holy will of our God without submission. You have to do it. Obedience is not legalism. It is a sign of what Christ has done in our heart. So we have a desire to, to submit to our Lord and Savior. It is a sign of our love for him, as Jesus says. If you love me, you'll what? You obey me. And we come along and say, oh, no, obedience is legalism. Well, Jesus used the same word. So how does this work? How does the church submit? The church does not submit to Christ by singing a little softer, exercising intelligence a little less, or seeking to be a little influence in the world. Rather, she is called to arrange all of her energies and abilities under the grand purpose of our glorious Savior. To do any less is not submission. To not give God our best is is not submission. Every gift, everything that God has blessed us with is to be aligned with the very purposes of God for our lives, which is what? To go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. So to do less is not submission. It's actually disobedience. So why do we do this? Because this is the motivation behind it, right? Why in the world would I even be motivated to submit myself to a Lord and Savior? I want my way. Which is essentially what Adam and Eve did in Genesis 2. And what the whole Bible is written about, how God works against. Why do we do this? because of this next part here, because Christ is the church's savior. He is the one who saves the church. Jesus' headship over the church is shown by his love for her and gives himself up for her. When it comes to marriage, this has these massive implications, again, for husband's behavior as the head of the wife. This isn't a domineering relationship. Jesus has given himself as a sacrifice to his bride, and in turn, the bride gladly submits to her groom. God didn't meet us halfway. He refused to hold back, cautious assessing of our worth. He doesn't do that. That is not his heart. He and his son took the initiative on terms of grace and grace alone in defiance of what we deserve when we, despite our smiles and our fake civility, all of the makeup that we could possibly put on to cover up all of our ugliness... We were running from God as fast as we could, building our own kingdoms and loving our own glory, lapping up all the fraudulent pleasures of this world, repulsed by the beauty of God and shutting up our ears at his call to come home like a child, covering his eyes or his ears, like a child going, na, 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 I can't hear you. Because if you're a parent, you've had that happen. It was then in the hollowed-out horror of a revolting existence that the Prince of Heaven said goodbye to his adoring angels. And it was then that he put himself into the murderous hands of those very rebels in a divine strategy planned from the eternity past to rinse muddy sinners clean and hug them into his own heart despite their squirming attempts to get free and to scrub themselves clean. Christ went down into death while we applauded. We couldn't have cared less. We were weak. We were sinners. We were enemies. It was only after the fact, only once the Holy Spirit came flooding into our hearts that the realization swept over us. He walked through my death. why do I submit to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? Because he saved me. One of the the most discouraging things when you're talking to people is when you say, hey, you know, uh, I see this in your life, which is what we're called to do as a family, right? We're called to to encourage and, and rebuke one another, right? So we're called to do that. That's why membership's important. And you go up to that individual and you say, I, my heart's been burdened for this. You know, I've been spreading, I've been crying tears over this. I see this in your life. Can, we, you got to do something about it. You know, God's word says this. And their response is, yeah, I know, but. Do you understand where submission, the lack of submission is a problem? How can I possibly understand what God has poured out on my life as a wretched sinner and not submit? I can't. It's impossible. See, this is the heart of Christ that we see here. He didn't simply leave heaven for me. He endured hell for me. He not only... He not only... He did, he did not deserve condemnation. He, he absorbed it in my place. I, who alone deserved it, this is the heart of Christ. Christ is the church's savior. When we have a greater understanding of what our holy God has done for us, why would we not submit? Better yet, why would we not obey, knowing that God will work out all things for the good of those who love him? It's not always easy. I love that line from Aslan from Chronicles of Narnia, right? Where I can't remember his name, says about Aslan. He's not always safe, but he's good. And it's not always pleasant, but knowing it will be for our God because it is rooted in what Christ has done for us He has made us his bride. So what is our outcome of this? Because of what Christ has done for us, we are the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ simply because of his sovereign love for his bride. And as a bride of Christ, we submit to him as our head. On a side note, this is why it's very difficult for someone to say these words, I love Jesus, but I really can't stand his church. My goodness, if someone said that to me about my bride, I can get pretty mad. And mine's not a holy wrath. What in the world do we think we're doing? You can't love Christ, the groom, and hate his bride, the church. We are messed up. The church is messed up. We are sinful. And we make mistakes and we hurt people. We do that. History is full of examples. There's examples here in this very church. But we are his bride. And we are called to submit. And you can't hate the bride and love the groom. How many movies are there? Romance movies, right? Where the bride or the groom are hated by a group of people. Like, our world understands what happens when you hate either one. Relationships become strained. They break down. They fall apart. Eventually, you just stop going to church. And as a bride of Christ, Jesus doesn't leave us in our state, but he picks us up and he cleans us up. We are messy people. And he did save us knowing our mess. So as Jesus makes the church his bride, he doesn't leave us in our state. He cleans us up as his bride. He makes us clean. So this next part in verses 25 to 27, we see this amazing thing. The church is sanctified by Christ. As Christ loved the church, he says in verse 25. How does he show that? Again, he gave himself up for her. This is the definition of a self-sacrificing love God has for his church. God is good. We say that all the time, right? God is good. God is good. You know what the greatest problem is? Is that God is good. Because if he's good, I'm not. And if God is good, that means he's got to deal with the fact that I am not. But here we see that Christ sanctifies his church. We see the problem is that we're not good. So the question is this, is what does a good God do with a people like us? We have sinned against him. The Bible says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are not good. There's no part of you that is. Any concept of being born good, you're not a parent is out the window. You have rebelled against him. God is righteous. And if God is righteous, he can't just pardon. Sin has to be dealt with. The rebellion needs to be squashed. The rebellious needs to pay for the rebellion. So where does this leave you and me? We're all damned outside of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we are objects of God's wrath because of our sin. There has to be a payment for that sin. Rebellion from, a righteous, rebellion from a righteous and just God. But God doesn't leave it there because he is merciful. He can't sacrifice, you can't sacrifice one attribute of God for the sake of the other, okay? You can't. The true gospel doesn't do that. It embraces it all. And you see that even in the same letter in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-10. to And you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You get the point of who you are, right? And among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, love it, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated his seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. But God being rich in mercy, God has sanctified us because of his great love which he loves us. Who? The church. In verse 26, that he might sanctify to make holy and to set apart, to be set apart for God. The church is sanctified and purified by the cleansing power of the gospel. She is a body set apart, a people who have repented and believed in the gospel that Christ died for our sins and rose again. The church is being sanctified By Christ. The church are those who have been elected, who have been called, who have been justified, and are now being sanctified. Romans 8.30 says that, right? And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Why? So that he may present... The church in splendor, and it's this beautiful picture of how he's cleaning. You know how, how when, 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 a, when a woman's getting married and she's walking down the aisle and she's wearing that white gown? No, I just did a wedding this not too long ago, and if she's watching this, she's gonna hate me. But uh, she, she, I, I've seen her since I've known her since she was like grade five, which makes me feel very old but here I am I'm looking at her walking down the aisle and I see her future husband just beaming like oh my goodness I was so happy and I'm looking at her going A. I've never seen her wear a dress like that and B. I don't know if I've ever seen her wear makeup right Christ comes and he cleans up his messy church and and, and, and presents her presents her with all of that beauty cleaning her up So what is the outcome of what Christ has done for his church? And here's the point. Who is the church? What is the church made of? The church is the body of Christ made up of individuals who have been bought by the precious blood of Christ who are being sanctified, who are being cleansed. The church has been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. She is now his. Hence why we also submit. Practically, here, how does this come through? If I truly understand, as a church, as a body, as Noah Baptist Church, if we as a group truly understand what God has done for us, that he has sanctified us, that he has cleansed the dirt that is in our life, how should we treat others who may not look as clean as we do? A proper understanding of the gospel does change how we treat others. It has to. Ray Ortland says this to his church every once in a while. Actually, he's retired now, but down in Nashville, Tennessee, he says this to all, to all who are weary and need rest. To all who mourn and long for comfort. To all who feel worthless and and wonder if God cares. To all who fail and desire strength. To all who sin and need a savior. This church, may Nolwood Baptist Church, open wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus Christ. Ally of his enemies. The defender of the guilty. Justifier of the inexcusable. The friend of sinners. You see how a proper understanding of what God has done for us changes how we treat and interact with others. The church is sanctified by Christ. The church is the bride of Christ who is being sanctified by Christ. And the church, finally, in verses 28 to 33, the church is loved by Christ. Paul starts pointing at husbands, but in that he gives an example of how husbands are to love his wives by how Christ has loved his bride, the church. In verse 28, in in the same way it says, just as it would be natural for a man to love, nurture, and protect himself, in that same way he should love and nurture and protect his wife. That is what Christ has done for his church. Jesus is the ultimate example of one loving his own body, who, who loved his own body, the church, to the point of death. Jesus is nourishing and cherishing his bride. In verse 20, it just as Christ does the church. And why, do, why does he do this? Because we are members of his body. Just as the church has union with Christ, he cares for us as part of his body. Christ loves his bride. Loves his bride. I've been, I was talking to Steph yesterday, and I just said, you know, it's something that's just mind-blowing. It's so simple, but it's, it's mind-blowing to me. Because the concept of being loved when you feel unlovable is mind-blowing. And that's what Christ has done, right? Like, since before time, God had all of this planned. He didn't save me because of who I was going to be. He saved me despite of who I am. This is who I am. I'm a dirt, wretched sinner. Yet he saved me. Christ loved his bride. He has shown it through what he has done for us on the cross. Jesus died for his bride, giving of himself for her. The bride of Christ is loved by Christ, and it shows the most effectively at the cross. Dwell on that. If you are in Christ, he loves you. The creator of the world the creator of the universe that like Kevin was just dwelling upon in the answering of that question. The God who created everything and it was good just by speaking loves you. If you are in Christ, he loves you as part of his body. He loves you as he loves his own body. As a Christian, we know God loves us, right? We know that. Oh God, I know that you love me. Especially if you grew up in the church, you've heard all the songs, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know. And now it's stuck in your head. We've memorized all the verses, right? John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son. We know it all. We really believe that. But if we were to look closer at how we actually relate to God moment by moment, Which reveals our actual theology. Whatever we say we believe on paper, many of us tend to believe it is a love infected with disappointment. He loves us, we think, but it's a frustrated love. We see him looking down on us with paternal affection, but a slightly raised eyebrow we think God is saying to himself, how are they still falling short so much after all I've done for them? That's what we think. We picture him wondering those things and we are now, we are now sinning against light, the Puritans would say. We know the truth and our hearts have been fundamentally transformed and still we fall and the shoulders of our soul remain dropped in the presence of God. Once again, it is a result of projecting our own capacities to love onto God. We do not know his truest heart. If someone says to me, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church, again, it doesn't make much sense. But we've got to understand this. For God to cease to love his own, for God to stop to love his blood-bought bride with all of her messes, God would need to cease to exist. Because God does not simply have love. 1 John 4.16 says he is love. In the death of Christ for us sinners, God intends to give his love for us beyond question. Why is it that we are so anxious all the time? Why is it that we doubt the love of God that he loves his very own? Why do we sink into the merry depths of depression? You and me, we need to be reminded of what the church is. The church is made up of individual sinners who have been called together because our groom has redeemed us, knowing our dirt. The felt love of Christ really is what brings rest and wholeness and flourishing and what often people say, shalom. That, ex- that existential calm that for a brief gospel same movement settles over you and lets you step in out of the storm of your workiness. He loves us because he sovereignly loves us. He lo- saved us knowing exactly who we are. And what does it mean to be loved by Christ? I love Spurgeon's quote, which you can't really read, but if you want it, I'll read it for you. Yeah. Christ loved you before all worlds, he says. Long ere, did, long ere the day star flung his ray across the darkness before the wing of angel had flat the unnavigated navigated ether. Before aught of creation had struggled with the womb of nothingness, God, even our God, had set his heart upon all his children. Since that time, has he once swerved has he once decided? Has he once changed? No. Ye who have t- tasted of his love and know his grace will bear me witness that he has been a certain friend in uncertain circumstances. You have often left him, he has never left you. You have made many trials and troubles. Has he ever deserted you? Has he ever turned away his heart and shut up his bowels of compassion? No, children of God, it is your solemn duty to say no and bear witness to his faithfulness. This is a love that go, doesn't go away. Jesus never stops loving his blood-bought people. What is the church? The church is loved by Christ. When you sin, do the hard work of repenting. Rehate sin over again. Be active at murdering the sin that's in your life. Concentrate yourself afresh to the Holy Spirit and his pure ways, but reject that devil's whisper. Reject it. That God's tender heart for you has grown a little colder and a little stiffer. He is not flustered by your sinfulness. We learned a while ago that he is omnipresent and omniscient, which means he knows all the sin that you did and will do. Yet he loves you because he sovereignly loves you. If you are not in Christ, I don't know about you, but I needed to be reminded of this this week. If this is something that you long to know, if you are in Christ, open up your Bible and see the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers like you and me. If you are not in Christ, you can know the love of God who took a bunch of misfits as his own bride, cleaned them up, and shows them every day how he loves them. Talk to Pastor Matt, talk to myself. Don't leave this place without telling, letting us tell you more about how we are overwhelmed by the sovereign love of God. The songwriter Frederick Martin Lehman has a great hymn that says it this way. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty par- bowed down with care. God gave his only son to win. His erring child he reconciled. You and I pardoned from sin. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure it shall forevermore endure. How measureless and strong the saints and angels song we sing. Holy, holy. So what? Shouldn't have to do this, but so what? The church is the bride of Christ who has been bought by his precious blood. I grew up in the church. As many of you know, I grew up going to church. Going to church. So let me ask you again. When you think of the word church, what comes to mind? When we say that, I think a better way of saying it might be By coming to church, we call it. Maybe a better way of saying it would be I get to gather with the church. The blood-bought bride of Christ. And I get to come and I get to gather with them and be reminded from a week of being beat up in in all sorts of different ways about who God is and what he has done for me through songs that we sing, through the word that we open, through everything, every aspect. The picture of Christ and his relationship to the church is how uh, our marriages are to be arranged. So who is the church? The church is the bride of Christ who has been bought by the precious blood. That is manifested in the local church as this is a letter written to a specific church. It's only when we understand the gospel, when we understand who we are because of what Christ has done for us, that we will go out as sent people into a world telling other people about how a holy God has made a way for them to be reconciled to him. So we go out like Paul, pleading with people, be reconciled to God, because we understand that we have been reconciled. The church is the bride of Christ who has been bought by his precious blood. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for who you are and what you have done for us. We stand in awe of what you have done. Lord, remind us this morning, if we have heavy hearts this morning, God, I pray that you remind us of who we are in you. That we have been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That we are his bride. That we, have been, that we are being sanctified and that we are loved. Lord, I pray that that would send us out into this dark world, that we may be lights. And amen.